0: all right so as i was um reading through a little more of the first volume of pennington i i came to that the the chapter in the beginning on the apostasy and started to to have some thoughts and uh, some things i thought i could share about the apostasy um that's a word that maybe a, a lot of us here are familiar with because we've we've talked about it before or shared about it before. I don't know that it's a word that everybody is is familiar with. It, it's it just means it just means a falling away. Um, that's kind of what the word means. But um, I think it's important to understand. I think it's really important to understand what man has fallen away from. Almost every Christian I think that's serious about the Lord in any way will say that the church is in uh, not a great state or a deplorable state. That's a common. I think Christians have serious Christians have said that same thing for centuries. I've I've read a lot of Christians from past. Centuries and and they almost all. I mean, I, the the ones that I read at least almost all kind of more in the lamentable state of of the church and uh, and and they'll say it's uh, it shouldn't be the way it is. And even even I think new believers when someone starts getting excited about following Christ and starts attending church, there's there's kind of an, an initial time where they might think that. Things are good and their church is right on track and everybody loves the Lord with all their heart. And but if they're serious and if they're if their hearts are really wanting to know and experience the substance of what Christianity is and to uh, to to be free from everything that Christianity isn't or life in Christ isn't, then it's not long before I think all of those people also come to a place where they start to feel like something's really wrong, and they they look around and they say, "Well, this isn't this isn't what I'm reading in scripture. This is this is so different than what, um, you know, what the experience of the early church was. That this is uh, whatever whatever the thing is. But as it's easy to it's easy to see that something's wrong. But I think that there's few, in my experience, there's few. People who, relatively speaking, who understand um, why something's wrong. What's the cause of there being something so wrong, so universally wrong, everywhere? And um, and I think that the reason that people don't really understand what's wrong or why something's wrong is primarily and I, I probably won't say much about this today but just to throw it out there it's because they're not willing <clears throat> generally to see the reason or the cause of the apostasy in their own in their own heart the the reason for the falling away um in their own experience now in the beginning of Pennington's uh chapter on on the apostasy he puts together and if you haven't read it you can you can read this but dozens of of different scriptures where the authors of the new testament were talking about a coming falling away it's not just a term that uh, people have invented to describe the sad state of the church it's something that was spoken about in by the the authors of the new testament by Jesus himself in a whole bunch of different ways and a whole bunch of different kinds of descriptions. And, um, it seems a little bit anticlimactic, honestly, when, if you, if you, <clears throat> if you think about it to say, okay, here after centuries, thousands of years of, of the promised Messiah coming, the, the Messiah comes, he, the, he, he does the work uh of the cross he pours out his spirit there's a great revival there's many turned to christ many walking in christ experiencing the life changing heart changing power of the cross and then and then and yet right then in their own letters um you you read about many turning away going back to weak and work worthless um uh, outward shadows you even jesus is dealing with his own church and Revelation chapters two and three, you see that the church he has very strong things to say against the way that most of those seven churches are are heading, and um, and and that's just all over the New Testament, and it seems a little bit uh, anticlimactic in the sense if you you were expecting that everything was just going to change after the coming of the Messiah, and then you see that there was a kind of a great change in some places and in some people for a short time. And then all of a sudden it, um, it went, it went bad or it, something happened, something changed. <clears throat> uh, one thing to keep in mind about that, to make it seem a little less strange is that that's, that's always, as far as I can tell, that's always been the case. And in the, in the very beginning, that was the case. God created Adam and Eve perfect. and, <clears throat> and, created the entire creation to magnify himself and it didn't take long for the fall to happen and then he does noah and the flood and destroys the whole first generation or first not gener- the the first world the early world before the flood and then starts over with noah and it doesn't take very long before they're building the tower of babel and trying to reach heaven in their own efforts and then <clears throat> then you can you go on through the old testament he starts dealing with Israel and Abraham and Abraham walks by faith. And so does Isaac and Jacob, but their sons and daughters as they increase um, are have a very different heart about them and rebel against the Lord. And then he gets them finally into the promised land and it's, it establishes a kingdom through, or through Joshua. And then they fall away through the judges. And then they establish it again with David and Solomon, but then they fall away after that. You know, it's just a, it's just a, it's kind of an ongoing a theme. And the reason it's an ongoing theme, the reason I'm saying that is because the apostasy isn't really a thing that has to do with a time period or a, um, <clears throat> I mean, it, it's manifested in all time periods, I think, through, throughout the history of the world. But it's not really a, a thing that has to do with time or has to do with um a particular people or a particular place, it's something that takes place in the heart of man. And and because the heart of man is what it is and wants to be what it is, is—that what we see throughout history is just a reflection of what man chooses for himself when he has the power to choose. And... If you were to ask me what is um, the apostasy, or how 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 should we understand it, or how should we define it, um, I think there's um, there's a bunch of ideas popping in my head here. I guess about um, about what it is, but it's not the losing or falling away of one particular aspect. Of walking with God or Christianity it's not it's not losing a particular belief it's not losing some morals it's not stopping certain understandings of how to do church or how to do this or that Uh, people are always trying to fix the church by bringing back in aspects and pieces and parts and teachings and 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 uh, ways of doing meetings that are that are supposedly you know going to fix things uh and, and yet they just, they find that they they continually recreate the same problem over and over again. You, you know what I mean by that? I mean, ever since I became uh, uh, a Christian and started to pay attention to what was going on in the church, there's been people that say, well, oh, we've got to get back to the Acts chapter 2 model. That's how, we got to get back to home church meetings. That's the That's the problem, you know, or we've got to get back to doing, communion every week instead of once a month or once a year or something or, or we've got to get back to this or that or without and always trying to seeing a problem feeling a problem and then trying to get back to the solution by changing some kind of an outward thing some kind of something that's been left behind something that you can read in the bible and and say oh we don't do this anymore oh we changed the way we did this we should never have done this and then we change those things and we find that the that the the people still keep living the same way and the hearts are still the same and, and uh, the apostasy continues. Um, and so what is the apostasy? I, I think it is, in just a few words, it is the turning away from Christ or the life and light of God reigning in the heart of man. It's a losing of his life, of his power, of his grace as the operating king or the operating living truth that governs and reigns and rules and leads and enlightens and teaches in the heart of man. It's One way to say it is it's the denial of Christ. It's, it's denying Christ to the right to reign and live his life in our earthly tabernacles, in our earthly bodies. There's a couple of verses that I, I want you to take a look at. And, and I know these verses have other, other meanings. But if you want to turn to 1 John, you don't have to. I'm going to read it, but... In First John chapter four, and then in Second John chapter one, there's a couple interesting verses. <coughs> um, chapter four, verses two and three, and and I think I just I want you to pay attention a little bit to the the word confess because I think we have a misunderstanding of what that word means in this scripture. It says, by this you know the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the Spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. 2 John uh, chapter 1, verse 7 says something very similar. He says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an Antichrist. Um, I believe though, though this, this scripture is, has, like I said, has a a variety of different interpretations and ideas associated with it. I believe it's saying something that's really quite simple. First of all, I don't believe it's talking about a man or a person that's going to be named the Antichrist like a lot of people talk about in the church. I I don't I don't think that that's even remotely related to what he's saying here. He says it's already in the church at that time, 2000 years ago. It was coming and it's already started. But more importantly, I don't think that to confess that Jesus has come in the flesh is to verbally profess that Jesus came in his own flesh as a historical event. I don't think that's what John's talking about there. I think that the reality of antichrist or deception in the church is to deny, not necessarily in words, but see, that that word confess actually, it means to be of one mind or to acknowledge. I don't know of, honestly, a better word that we could use in in English that would... um, say it more clearly, but I think that the spiritual reality of it can be seen and felt clearly, even if we don't have a perfect word to describe it. And what I think he's saying there is that here's what makes a real church. It's Christ reigning in his body, in the flesh of man, in in the flesh of his church that still lives in the earth. That's that's the real experience. And anything, and, and if Christ is not reigning in his body, if you deny Christ the right and the, the place and the dominion to reign in you, in us, in his church, that's antichrist. That is, in other words, that's something else that's not Christ living in Christ's body. And that's deception. That's Antichrist. I think Paul talks about it in another place, and he describes it as the, the man of perdition, or the son of perdition, the, son, the, the one who is reprobate, the, the, the life that is, that is not the life of God, setting up his, uh, setting up himself in the temple of God, exalting himself over everything that is called God. Again, people have taken that to be a natural man, a human being that's setting himself up in the temple in Israel, which has been destroyed for thousands of years, but uh, that's where the idea comes that it's going to be rebuilt. Generally, people use that verse. I don't know if you guys are even familiar with this theology, but there's a really popular theology, theology in the church today that the Antichrist man is going to come and he's going to make He's going to rebuild the temple in Israel and he's going to reign there because Paul says that the son of perdition is going to reign. It reigns in the temple of, of God, setting up himself against over everything that is called God. Well, I don't think that's what that scripture is talking about either. I think that all of these scriptures are talking about the great apostasy, the reality that something is governing in man in the church that isn't the life and power, and nature, and kingdom of Jesus Christ. That's the apostasy. Christ came not just to pardon our sins and let us continue to live our lives as the governing king of our own bodies and souls. He came in order to establish a kingdom in man. That's the very first thing he said. The hour has come, the, the time has been fulfilled, the kingdom of God has drawn near to you. And that's what he preached. That's what all of his parables were compared to. The kingdom of God is like this. The kingdom of God is like that. He came declaring the hour had come for God to establish a kingdom in man. And all of his parables are describing kind of how that kingdom comes, how it starts as something small and grows, how it is something that you have to find like a little pearl that's hidden or a hidden treasure in order to possess it you can find it without possessing it because in order to possess it you have to sell everything you have to to gain it to experience it you can't hold the two things you can't serve two masters in the same house he he compares it to a house where the strong man formerly has been in charge of all the goods, but the stronger man comes, binds them, casts them out, and then reigns in the house. And he, all all of his parables are are they're not talking about just the Messiah that's going to come, do something, and then just say, you know, here you you all have forgiveness of sins, and, or or whatever people say, and, and 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 then we're good to go. Everything was about Christ coming to live in us and that's why that phrase in Christ or Christ in us is so predominant in the New Testament it's because that's the whole point the whole point is that Christ <clears throat> was coming to set himself in the temple of God as the presence and power of God in man and that the church was going to be a corporate body in which that presence and power was was walking and, and experiencing the reign of Christ in us. And that's why in some of his parables, like one of his parables, he says, he said like the, the people that didn't want that to happen said, we do not want this man to reign over us. Or in another one, we don't want to give the man the increase or the fruits of the vineyard. Let's kill him and then we can enjoy the fruits of our own vineyard without having to give them to him, you know? So maybe we, we could we could look at all of these different parables in in depth, <clears throat> but I think they all say the exact same thing, in substance, from different angles for different purposes. But the the thing that they're saying is that Christ has come to to set up his uh, kingdom and establish himself as the living power and light and nature in his in each one of our hearts individually and in his corporate body the church and it's the falling away from that it's the loss of that inward governing of the life and power and light of jesus christ that is the great apostasy that's that's what happened christ came he offered himself not as a teacher, not as a philosopher, not as just a, a giver of, of uh, forgiveness. And I, when I say that, I, I'm in no way minimizing the forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins is wonderful, but it just doesn't change our nature. What changes the nature of man is the governing of the life of God and the soul of man. He's, he gave himself as the, as the light and the life and a covenant in which man could walk with God. He gave himself as the living righteousness The living truth, the living way, the love of God, the power of God. Which is, again, why there's so many scriptures that talk about how the gospel isn't just words, it's power. I did not come to you with words of of, of man's wisdom, but with a demonstration of power. The kingdom of God is not in words, but in power. And he came, so Jesus came to save man And that's what salvation is. He came to save man by being the life of man, the life that's living and governing in man. But man has a soul of his own that can live by another life and power. And if he wants to, he can and has always been able to crucify the appearing of the one who comes to reign in the temple of God. That's what Adam and Eve did in the garden, in, in, a, in a manner of speaking, and which is, I believe, why he is the lamb who was crucified from the foundation of the world. That's what man has always done in every way and attempt that God has tried to exalt with even in the types and shadows of the old testament joseph has a dream that he's going to reign over his brethren over israel what do they do to him they they throw him in a well that those kinds of stories abound Uh, that's what happened with david too david was the picture of christ the type and shadow of christ he was going to save israel and destroy israel's enemies what do they do with him they chase him into a cave and try to kill him, you know. That's, that's the spirit of Antichrist that says, this man will not reign in my house. And so man has an, an ability because man has a, a soul created of God that can either turn to and unite with Unite the will with the life and power and appearing and light of Christ. Or it can turn away and live in its own light, so to speak. But if the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? It can live in its own power, but what is that power that works in man apart from Christ? He can choose his own way, but what is the way? That isn't Christ, I am the way. you know he can do all of that and and it's for that reason that it's for that turning away and losing Christ in that role that he was meant to have, Christ come in the flesh, Christ sitting in his temple that uh, that there has there has been and continues to be a great apostasy. And that's also why you can't just fix it by having one generation of people who are willing to, like you can't just fix it by having the apostles and their generation be willing to walk with Jesus Christ as the living King of their soul. That's a wonderful thing they experienced and they described it so wonderfully in scripture, but it didn't fix the next generation. You know, we here have read a lot of the uh, early Friends. They had an amazing amount of people who allowed the Lord to live and reign in in their hearts in such a powerful way that transformed their hearts and filled them with the nature and life of the Lamb and the love of God. It didn't fix the next generation, though. And it can't fix the next generation because everybody has a soul that can apostatize or turn to that light and let that kingdom be established in us and as I said in the beginning there's a lot of people a whole lot of people who will confess that um, they'll confess that something is so wrong and the church lacks power in fact that's I remember hearing that a lot when I was a young Christian I remember hearing people talk about the church just doesn't have the power it used to have and that's true in a bunch of different ways but there's very few that are willing, I believe, to submit, to know that power by submitting to the power in the way that it comes. And this is a little bit of a bunny trail, and I'm not going to take it. It's tempting to take it. But I kind of want to stay on track a little bit. Just, just to say there's the way the the way to be free from the covenant, I mean sorry, the, the apostasy, is to walk in is to receive the power in the way that it comes. And the way that it comes now inwardly is exactly like, in an inward way, it's exactly like the, the way that it came outwardly. The re, in other words, the reason that people don't experience the power of Christ reigning in them now can be easily seen by just reading why and what were the reasons why people did not receive Christ as an inward spiritual king when he came outwardly. He comes in a very specific way. The power starts in man with a very specific testimony. The receiving of that power Comes with an acknowledging, a true heart turning and acknowledging of what power is already working in man. A contrary power is working in man. There's a legion in man. There's seven demons that need to be cast out of Mary Magdalene. There's there's a there's a darkness that works in, in the in the sons of disobedience that has to be acknowledged. Has to be and and. Okay, I'm, I'm starting to go go on that that trail, and I'm not gonna. I said I'm not gonna take it. I don't want to take it. But because man has fallen away from that experience of Christ reigning in the soul, he has had no other uh, uh, option but to begin to invent the reality and the experience of every spiritual thing he reads about in scripture. Because there's no true, think about it. There's everything, Christ is the sum of all spiritual things. We know that simply by reading the New Testament. Christ is made unto you wisdom. Christ is made unto you righteousness. The Lord our, this is the name by which he will be called, the prophet said. The Lord your righteousness. Righteousness isn't something you just figure out how to make yourself. Righteousness is Christ living in you. What is wisdom? Well, it comes down from above. The wisdom from below is earthly, sensual, and demonic. But the wisdom that comes from above, which is Christ, Christ, the wisdom of God, Christ, the power of God. Christ is the sum of all spiritual things. Christ is your sanctification, Paul says. Christ, it's not something that you learn how to do. It's Christ himself becoming all of those things in you as he's formed in you. And so if you lose my point is if you lose Christ the substance of all spiritual things and and yet you you go to this book this this bible and you read about all of these spiritual terms and you don't know the experience of Christ being all of those things there's no other op, there's no other option for man except to just begin to invent there's not a third category. You either know these words, like all the ones I just mentioned, righteousness, wisdom, sanctification, as the presence and power and increase of the Son of God reigning in your soul. You say, oh yeah, that's that's righteousness. It's not what I was trying to do when I was living in my flesh for God. It's this other nature that's beginning to to come alive in me, that is Christ himself. You see, if that's not happening, what other option do you have when you come across the word righteousness in the Bible but to give it some other meaning, to fill it with some other substance that isn't Christ? And see, that's why in in the great apostasy, um, there's there's so many... Words that man has defined and understood totally wrongly. It, it's it's unavoidable. It's not, and the reason I say that is because okay, just to give you, I, I remember this one time I was at a, at a meeting at uh, the, someone's house. This is a long time ago, but in the course of our conversation, I was sharing some things about um, I don't remember, but it, but I was bumping into words like faith, and I was saying, but but when I say faith, I don't just mean man's belief. About God, when I say faith, I mean uh, uh, an actual the the faith of the Son of God, the faith that shines in our heart and shares with us something of the light of God, the perspective of God, the the seeing of what God sees. And then I bumped into the word glory, and I said, "Oh, glory isn't just a future place. You know, we think about one day I'll go to glory, but I was saying glory is actually the you know something of the manifestation of the nature of God." Or then I bumped into the word love, and I said, "Well, when when we think of love," you know, don't don't just think about you know man's love, and I was I tried to describe a little bit of the love of God, and at the end of the the meeting, I remember the guy that it was actually the house I was staying at, the um, the the husband uh, came up to me privately and 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 asked me. He said, "What gives you the right to redefine all of these spiritual words that we already have good theological definitions for?" and um, I remember just kind of staring at him and not, not being sure what to say. And I don't know if it came to me then or it came to me later, but I think the answer to, the, to that question is, I don't have a right to do anything, but when you start to see the one who is all of those things, then it doesn't give you a right for you to redefine anything but it makes you feel the necessity to abandon all of the ways that you have already wrongly defined those things, having not experienced the person who is the substance and reality and definition of them. And that's kind of what I, I felt like I was doing. I wasn't, I wasn't saying, hey, listen to me. I have, a better, I have a better definition of this word than Wayne Grudem or someone that wrote a book on system, systematic uh, theology. Anybody who starts to see the living truth, it's, it, it, it always sounds kind of critical or judgmental. and It's not, I don't think, I mean, it can be. It can be that way in people's hearts, I suppose. But it also can have nothing to do with being critical and judgmental. When you start to see the one that is the reality, um, then you also come to see the things that have taken his place in our understandings of everything. You see that the church, for instance, isn't just a bunch of people that come together that sing songs and have the same beliefs. The church is supposed to be a gathering of people who are sharing the same life and walking in the same light. And when you try to describe that, you can't, if you try to describe that, I don't know how you're going to not bother or offend the people who do think it's just a group of people who come together and sing songs and have the same beliefs. Do You see what I'm saying? It's like, it's like John the Baptist, you know, this is, if you read in scripture, the people, I'm going to do it on time. Okay, I should probably wrap up pretty quick here, but... um, the people that were seeing and experiencing the substance in, in Scripture were always coming out in strong words against people who had invented meanings for those words. John the Baptist, he he saw and I think felt something of what true righteousness was and where it came from. And and so what what did he say about the righteousness that was already being defined and established by the people around him? He had nothing good to say about it. Not because he just came out in a critical judgmental spirit, but because he knew that the only righteousness that was possibly going to be seen to be righteousness in the eyes of God was something totally different than what the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the common Jews of his time had had accepted as righteousness if you If you think about uh, the the prophets saying things like these sacrifices and, and offerings that you're making with the, your hearts totally contrary to God are, are meaningless. They're, they're worthless. And they were getting, the, the people who were killing the prophets for saying things like that. But they had to say it because they saw and felt and knew something of the real fragrance that God was accepting, the real death on the altar that God accepted and, and knew that if you tried to do these shadows without a heart that was turned towards the substance, they had no meaning at all. Or Jesus you know comes and the Samaritan lady says, you guys say you have to worship in in this place and with these this temple and these rituals and we say it's got to be on this mountain over here and Jesus says, you know, real worship isn't it ha- doesn't really have to do with places or times. It's a spiritual reality. Well, that, someone could say well, that's really critical. You just you just denounced everything that's going on in, in Jerusalem, in the temple, and the and the and the and the sacrifices and the priests. And all right, well, um. Keep going. <laughs> um. I was just told to keep going. Maybe I'll go a little bit longer. I always want to stop these things with time to talk, but maybe I'll just say one more little subject, and that is that Pennington then begins to describe, ask the question, what's supposed to be the rule of life of every believer? What's supposed to be, he calls it the rule, what's, and what he means by that is what's supposed to be ruling or governing in the heart of every believer What's supposed to govern the soul or the, the the Christian life, and and to answer that question, almost everybody that you would ask in his time and in our time gives the answer, the Bible, the Bible is. But see the problem with that answer, and I say this with the most uh, respect and I think the highest regard for the scriptures of, of that that is that you can have. I think they're all God breathed. breathed. I believe every word of them. I believe that. Every word of them uh, has been given to us by the Spirit, inspired by the Spirit for uh, all the reasons that are are plainly said in Scripture. I read them every day. I I believe that they are um, indispensable. And yet, the problem with saying that the Bible is the rule of the Christian life is that in the apostasy, where Antichrist reigns. In other words, where something else is reigning in man. Where, where the son of perdition, the fallen, when, I, when the son of perdition is, is the fallen man, it's not Judas. Judas became a, uh, a very clear outward picture of it by his rejection and turning against Christ. And, that, and for that reason, Jesus called him the son of perdition. But the son of perdition isn't Judas as a man. It's the the birth in man that crucifies or rejects the Savior. And and where where that son of perdition or where that Antichrist is reigning in man, where, where Christ has not come in the flesh, then we have to ask the question, who is it in us or what is it in us that is reading interpreting, applying, and teaching the Bible. You see, the Bible in and of itself, is a, it's a wonderful thing. But if it's being read and understood and applied and taught and demanded and required by something in man that isn't the spirit of Christ, then it becomes something very different than, than what it was meant to be. That's why Jesus said to the Pharisees in John 5, 38, you guys diligently seek the scriptures. I mean, you, you look in them, you study them, you learn them, but you don't come to the thing that they're testifying. All of them testify of me. They all testify of a life and you're refusing the life while you're studying the scriptures. And, and, and by doing that, what you're going to end up doing, he doesn't, I'm, I'm adding to his words here, but it, it's, it's clear that this is exactly what happened. By doing that, by, by loving the words and, By by loving the words with the eyes and the heart of the son of perdition, you're going to end up crucifying the very thing that they're talking about. You're going to end up hating it. You're going to end up turning against it. In fact, you're doing it right now because you hate me. How can the Bible be the true rule of a Christian when the nature of that Christian is Antichrist? Do you see that? Do you understand that question? How can the Bible be the only thing that we're looking to to govern our Christian life if the nature and life that's working in us has rejected and crucified the very life that's being described by the Bible? And, and that is why there's 20,000 denominations in the, in the church today. That's why there's so much fighting. That's why there's been historically so much bloodshed between Christians killing each other or killing other people in the Crusades or whatever, because it's the hand, it, it's the it's the words of God put into the hands of the Son of Perdition. It's it's the words of God put into the hands of the natural man, and that makes the natural man even worse. Now I know that this sounds. I again I, I want to say again, this book is entirely from God, and every word in it was breathed forth from his spirit and yet you put this book into the hands of the natural man to read it in his own with his own fleshly eyes interpret it with his own fleshly desires and you make that man even worse than he was before because now by adding spiritual words to a carnal heart you you actually increase his sense of authority and you increase his, his sense of, of pride. you increase his natural ambitions and give them spiritual ambitions on top of his own natural ambitions. you increase his sense of self-righteousness. you increase his sense of wisdom, although it's a false wisdom that comes from below. you increase his sense of the power that he has to change things and fix things and do things in the name of God even though his heart has rejected God. And, and I and I know that when you say this, and I, I say this again. I, I've heard this many times. People say, "Oh, you don't. You're not. You're not giving the Bible its due respect." It's not that I don't respect the Bible. I love the Bible. It's that I don't respect myself. It's that I don't. I don't trust my flesh. Reading the Bible, understanding it, interpreting it, and applying it in the power of of a man who has apostatized from the kingdom and nature of of Christ. So that's where I'm going to stop.